This is the Transit Matters Podcast. Today is the 5th of April, 2016. Transit Matters advocates for fast, frequent, reliable, and effective public transportation in Boston, in and around Boston. As part of our vision to repair, upgrade, and expand the MBTA, we work to change the conversation around transit issues through informed planning and critical analysis. I'm Marky Bunya, and I'm our communications and social media director. By day, I'm an IT systems administrator, and by night, I'm the Leslie Nope of transit, geeking out over meeting transit celebs, governance policy and civic engagement. Hi, I'm Josh Fairchild. I'm a board member here at Transit Matters. I work as an attorney, but in my free time, I like to indulge my passion for improving communities through better development and infrastructure, specifically with regards to transit and transportation networks. And I'm Jared. I'm the newest board member here at Transit Matters. I'm from Oklahoma City by way of Houston and Cincinnati, and I work on community revitalization uh, and volunteerism with AmeriCorps, and my passion is where equity, transit, and housing meet. On the podcast today, we have a couple of guests from Transportation for Massachusetts. Transportation for Massachusetts is a diverse coalition of organizations working together to create a safe, convenient, and affordable transportation for everyone. They advocate for fair and responsible transportation investment for transparent and accountable transportation decisions and to ensure that our transportation network has sufficient resources to meet tomorrow's needs all throughout the Commonwealth. And in the room today, we have Partnerships Director Josh Ostroff and Policy Director Charlie Tikotsky. And it looks like we also now have Jerry Mendelson, who may or may not be able to introduce himself at the moment. So I guess what we'll start with is, um, it, you know, Charlie and Josh, um, we're happy to have you in the studio. I think many people who would be listening to the podcast, if not all, have heard of Transportation for Massachusetts, T4MA. Um, would you tell us a little bit in your own words about not only self-introduction, what, what you personally do uh, with T4MA, but also um, what, you know, why you think it's important for us to have the coalition and what you provide for the members as well as the, the citizens of the Commonwealth. We're delighted to be here. Transportation for Massachusetts is an organization of 58 member groups all around the Commonwealth. We include transportation organizations, public health, environmental, business groups, consumer groups, community organizations, and what we all have in common is a belief that transportation is a necessity, that people need good transportation choices to get to work, school, to live their daily lives, and also to have strong communities. So we came together about five years ago around the MBTA when the T was facing significant budget challenges, looking at service cuts and fare hikes. About a dozen organizations came together under the umbrella of the Barr Foundation, and B-A-R-R. And w since then, we have grown to be statewide. We've worked on many revenue campaigns, policy issues, trying to just build a more robust transportation network for the Commonwealth. And we re rely on several issues. First, we believe transportation is necess a necessity for individuals, for our personal economic opportunity. People in all neighborhoods, all communities need it. We need it for a strong regional and statewide economy. Transportation is essential for people to live healthy lives. And transportation is also a major source of climate-changing greenhouse gases. So a well-run transportation network will provide individual opportunity, lead to a better economy, enable healthier lives and reduce preventable disease, and help us turn the corner on climate change, which is a fundamental issue in our, in our communities, for our region, and for the planet. So as Partnerships Director, one of the things that I do is to work with business and municipal leaders and our member organizations to make sure that we have a well-coordinated strategy and message around the kinds of policies to have better transportation solutions and then to 
compliment the work of Charlie and the rest of our team around the kinds of advocacy and legislation and regulations that will help move us forward. So we have grown over the years because transportation is so important to what we do as a commonwealth. Um, but and it's really a front page news, a front burner issue for business and municipalities. As Secretary Pollock says, transportation is vital not so much for what it is, but for what it does. That in order to have a well-functioning economy that's ready for you know tomorrow's challenges and innovations, as well as opportunities for us, for every person, family, and business in the Commonwealth, we need transportation to perform at a much higher level than what it is today. And I know Charlie can talk about some of the issues and policies and legislation that we're working on to try to get where we need to be as a Commonwealth. Great. Well, uh, thank you for having us. Uh, so I'm Charlie Tykotsky. I'm the policy director at Transportation for Massachusetts. I've uh, been on board uh, for about three quarters of a year now. And uh, as Josh outlined, uh, I'm the one who you know is primarily responsible for uh, pushing and um, advancing the policies that our coalition has adopted. And so that includes uh, advocating to legislators of the state house, as well as uh, spending a lot of time at 10 Park Plaza uh, working on policies uh, with the administration. And uh, as much as possible, we engage our, our members, our executive committee, and our, our partners as well um, in advancing these goals. So thanks for having us. Thank you. You know, one of the, one of the things uh, I always like to ask our guests because I do feel like we live in an age where people are becoming aware or even cynical of, um, you know, who are the power players and, and how are they funded and, and what are their agendas. And so, so obviously, we're all here in the room, very interested in transit and supporting each other's goals. I do. It, sound, it sounded like the Bar Foundation is sort of where the funding comes from from T4MA. I think people might have questions about, you know, where does this organization get its funding from, uh, and how does that, you know, affect um, our agendas in the room. Sure. The Bar Foundation has a very strong social mission. They care deeply about climate and social equity and, and health and making sure that we have a you know, resilient commonwealth um, in order to meet you know, these pressing challenges, uh, that in order for people to reach their potential and for us to survive in, you know, uh, in, in a warming planet, uh, we need to be a lot more thoughtful and strategic about the decisions we make, you know, the levers that, that, that will affect those policies. So, you know, BAR is a family foundation. They uh, were able to uh, realize uh, significant gains through sale of Continental Cable many years ago. Um, but it's, uh, you know, they fund many organizations uh, in, in uh, Massachusetts and beyond uh, that are consistent with their goals. Uh, we also receive uh, member contributions, and I would just invite listeners to this uh, podcast just to check out Transportation for Massachusetts at t4ma.org. And, of course, we're always happy to accept individual contributions, but we're not here to make a fundraising appeal but to uh, talk about a lot of the issues. That, uh, but we want to let people know about our blog and social media and ways in which they can connect with us because we're, you know, we have about 12,000 people in our you know, supporters of ours, as well as, uh, you know, member organizations. And we are really interested to connect with the public and try to respond to some of the issues that are of so much concern for people today.
I appreciate that explanation. I know many people probably hear uh, the Bar Foundation name thrown around a lot, you know, in, in the Globe um, or in other news outlets. And so it's good, it's good to understand where, where that's coming from. And also, I think that's an interesting um, – we, we also have a similar not, – not exactly the same, but sort of this mezzanine-level um, – Outreach where we're not necessarily trying to drive you know hundreds and hundreds of thousands of members of uh, individuals, um, but trying to work with other organizations. So we're sort of in between organizations. So I can appreciate um, you know funding and, and the outreach that's necessary for that. So obviously we're we're here today to, to to talk about you know on a state level and at the state house um, what's happening. What should we be aware of as far as how transportation funding. Uh, may change for the future of the Commonwealth. And one of the things we can all agree on is there hasn't been enough funding um, for transportation. Um, We definitely have been wanting to play around in the margins of is there waste or graft or corruption? Okay, great. We'll we'll take care of some of that. But the the big issue is the funding. Is it there? Is it going to the right things? Is it transportation generally or transit specifically? Which parts of the state? So let's begin talking about what are the current... um, bills or policies um, being thrown around in the state house that we can that we need to be aware of sure so uh i'll start with one uh which we're very hopeful this year will at least get passed in the senate uh and that is uh, the bill that would enable local ballot initiatives to fund transportation projects um it's senate 1474, I believe. Uh, it's been reported out favorably from committee and is now in, in the Senate Committee on Rules. Uh, what that bill would do is enable uh, an individual community or multiple communities to come together and put a question on the ballot to the voters uh, to ask them whether uh, they're willing to raise a tax uh, or a set of taxes to, to fund transportation. It's the way that uh, in a lot of other states around the country, I think uh, somewhere between 25 and 30 states allow uh, cities, towns, regions, or counties to raise revenue. Um, We just don't have that here. Uh, You can do an override, but that's not going to be dedicated to transportation. um, And also you can't join with with other communities. So we're pretty excited about... uh, you know, this being as you know part of the funding puzzle, we don't think it's the uh, the panacea to all of our transportation funding issues, but uh, it's an exciting one. And, it's and a it, big start. It would be a big start. Yeah. Um, obviously, it's kind of a two step process where you'd first get the enabling legislation and then uh, many you know local campaigns. But it would really put uh, put the importance of, of certain projects to the test and put them directly to the voters. And in a way, it's a you know it's a response to the 2014 gas tax indexing mm-hmm. vote. In that people wanted, the, they didn't want uh, automatic tax increases. So this is in a sense the opposite. It's uh, every you know every tax increase would not only have to be approved but approved by voters for a ballot referendum. And we think that because it would be so local and have specific projects on the ballot. Uh, it would probably be, uh, you know, likely to be successful, uh, the individual votes. And around the country, you typically see about a 70 to 75 percent passage rates for these. And when there's a you know temporary tax increase and then it goes to the ballot a second time, it often goes up, even in places like Missouri, Georgia, Colorado Springs, Oklahoma yeah, City, Oklahoma City, yeah. et cetera. Well, because we were, I'm sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, one of the uh, benefits of this approach is that it actually gets to one of the big challenges that face us as a commonwealth, which is 
the public confidence in, in government and in our transportation agencies is very low. Mm-hmm. People don't have good confidence of, of how their money is being spent. And the front page news is all about failure. But this actually gives voters an opportunity to say, if I'm willing to raise my, say, local sales tax, uh, you know, a quarter of a percent, I will get these specific projects back. That's the way the legislation is written. So there's an accountability there where they can actually see what they're going to get for their money. Um, and I think that that in Massachusetts, historically, there's been a disconnect between what we spend and what we get. So this is a way to get around that. And if we see what happens elsewhere in the country, as we were just saying, you know, I, th- I think that would give people more confidence that their uh, dollars would be properly managed and go to sp- things that really do benefit them. It's not right for every community, uh, but it's a absolutely good part of the solution for Massachusetts. Right. And the communities that it's not right for, they can simply vote it down. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the things I like about this is that you can go to the voters and say, here's the the 10 things or the five things that we're going to do over the next five years. And then you come back after five years and you say, we checked all the boxes and now here's the next, you know, five things to continue that we'd like to do. And so you get that very direct feedback loop, you know, to the voters. One Mm -hmm. of the questions I have, and forgive me if you already said this and I I missed it, how local are we talking? Does this, could this be the entire MBTA catchment region? Could this be um, municipalities? Um, could this be neighborhoods? Like, how would we be able to slice this? So the the way the legislation is written, it would be one or more communities. Um, so MBTA region would be very difficult, I think, logistically and politically to get all those communities together. Uh, it'd be nice if we had a mechanism that did that, but the bill allows one or more communities. So you so. Um, you know, the, the more that you try to bring into a region, that would be a, a, a big lift. But I think we'd probably see individual cities and towns and, and small to medium groups, you know, a handful come together. In a lot of other states, uh, there's stronger county government, and that's, uh, that's often the way that, um, that, the, that these ballot measures are implemented. We unfortunately don't have that here, so you have to do it at an individual level. So that, that does that does raise a a bit of a challenge, but we think that, you know, there's, there are natural projects that might group certain communities together or, uh, or regions that already work together, whether it's a regional school district or, or water, just something like that. Um, so it's, so it's really open-ended and, you know, once the enabling legislation went through, then there'd be a lot of options that, that towns and cities can play around with. So it sounds like maybe this is something where Boston and Somerville and Cambridge maybe could get together and say, here's a, a basket of, um, of things that we could all fund together that are mutually beneficial. And, or or if, if they didn't, or it could just be Boston, maybe. Yep. It, it could be Boston. It could be uh, towns in the suburbs. You could get, you know, Lexington and Bedford could join together. I mean, it really depends on what the needs are, what the unmet needs are, and whether there are projects that are perhaps below the level at which they would be funded with uh, state and federal dollars, um, but at a level where they still have some local appeal that people will say voluntarily, I'm willing to raise local taxes to pay for these. And I think one thing that is, is often missing from the from the picture from these discussions, you know, we talk about this, the big backlog, and um, I think it's important to talk about specific projects moving forward and, and you know, people want to see things done. People don't want to don't want to come up with, you know, seven billion dollars for basically the same thing, you know. And so I think that that's that's important. Saying these tangible things are what we're going to get, and you know, and how that's um, how that's going to work. There, there's been a lot of talk in in um, you know in, in response to past efforts uh, that 
you know, you have these these core cities where you know the overwhelming majority of people use transit at least once in a while, and you know passage of of it of an you know a smartly done thing that you know was well done and well marketed would, would probably be um, possible. Whereas you know we always have this false east west you know regional equity dichotomy, which isn't really a I mean, it's not really a like the, you know. Okay, it has some some there's some relevance in talking about regional equity, but the the kind of regional equity that we hear on transportation funding is is kind of made up, um, and this would allow us to kind of step away from that. I think. Yeah, well, and this allow you know it'll, it'll allow all 351 cities and towns uh, the ability to to raise revenue, and you know there's a lot of interest across the state. The Senate sponsors actually Senator Downing from from Pittsfield. Um, so there, there's a lot of uh, a lot of interest across the state, and I agree with Jeremy. You know, when you talk about a, a 7.3 billion dollar state of good repair backlog at the T, I mean, what, that is just so hard to wrap your your head around. Um, but if you talk about the bridge two blocks away from your house, that is a lot easier to understand. Well, I think I think it's it's going to be a challenge. Uh, the fact that that you know you're going to be uh, you know, banding together municipalities that that banding together certain groups of municipalities and, and not the entire MBTA. Um, but I think it's I think it's going to be a um, a benefit as well because a lot of times what you see whenever you you're required to do ballot initiatives across an entire uh, transit agency service area is that you'll have to throw in uh, projects that might not be as high of a priority, but you have to throw them in just to make sure uh, that it passes. And so I think. It's going to be good that, you know, if, if the, the priority is really, you know, this, this specific project or the specific groups of projects that's going to affect one line or, or one, uh, one section of the, the region that you can ask those voters directly and they can do it that way. And areas that are in the MBTA, um, in the in MBTA service area that maybe have their own, um, you know, have their own RTAs, they can also just go directly to themselves and, and tax just that municipality and fund those things. And so I think I think it's going to be uh, a positive, a positive thing. I think that what it also forces is a discussion of not just the costs, which is frequently something that uh, people focus on, but the benefits and what kind of jobs and, you know, and opportunities and how much time can you save? How much will we save on, you know, the... <laughs> Hundreds and hundreds of dollars you spend on average per year re- fixing cars. How much of those costs can we avoid, and opportunities can we provide by having better mobility within and between communities? So one of the other things that's always thrown around hand in hand with um, with the local ballot initiative is the value capture. And I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about that. And also, let, let me throw out a hypothetical that might be offer the, the concrete ability for people to think about this. So this this hypothetical, let's say it's neither good or bad, but let's say you know we've we've heard a lot in past uh, decades about, well, maybe we'll someday extend the blue line to Lynn. Okay, so let's have that be a hypothetical. Maybe that could be a thread through the rest of the conversation. So let's say that the good people of Lynn and others along the blue line are very much in favor of this, and we have a local ballot ballot initiative. Um, We have value capture. Um, Could you talk a little bit about value capture and local ballot, how they play together, and then how somebody in Lynn, you know, might might see this play out? So I think I mean, value capture and, and regional ballots, they are separate mechanisms, but they're they're both ways to raise revenue that aren't the complete answer. Uh, I think that they're, you know, two tools that our coalition strongly believes should be in in the toolbox when we're talking about transportation investments. But it's unlikely that either will, you know, solve our, our entire 
funding issues. I think, you know, when you're talking about an expansion, value capture can be a good candidate to provide some of the funding because, uh, you know, Blue Line to Lens, certainly that it could be used there. The, you know, the one that's on the table right now is, is the Green Line extension. And as you have just like a huge amount of investment going into that area and expected property taxes going up, it's, you know, it's existing money that it would be diverted to the project. So it's a public policy choice. Uh, it's not, it doesn't create new money necessarily um, as we're, as we're talking about it, but it, it diverts a portion of it to, uh, to the project. A- and with the uh, philosophy that uh, you're the underpinning that, that uh, project is what makes the, property tax go up in the first place so there's some logic there um but you know we shouldn't confuse it with other mechanisms that actually raise new money uh but you know we have to be creative because the we're not seeing the state and the federal government swoop in with with the money like they used to or or like a lot of people would like so both value capture and our and regional ballots are you know ways to to supplement the funding from from the state and federal governments I think it might be helpful for for listeners just to understand what we mean by value capture. And the principle here is that when you make a major transportation investment, or even a minor one, you're helping to create wealth. You're helping to provide uh, employers with access to employees and and markets and economic activity that returns a huge value to investors. So the principle here is that some of that value – that is created by transportation investments should help to pay for the investments that you make. And this happens in many parts of the country. For example, Denver's Union Station was an enormously successful effort, and a lot of that was done through a value capture. Or you could call it value sharing. So we don't really have a way of formally doing that. We do it on one-off projects. Assembly Square Station was an example. There's a new commuter rail station at Boston Landing where New Balance's headquarters is going to be, and they're helping to pay for that. But we don't have a legislative tool that makes that an option. Um, So that is important to do. But, of course, we have to recognize that many urgently needed investments won't have the direct benefits associated with them. There will be indirect benefits, and it's hard to do a value capture on, for example, a bus depot in the city of Boston for maintenance that we urgently need to do in order to – you know, uh, have more reliable bus service um, in the MBTA area. I, one of the things I like about value capture is that um, w- without it, then it becomes very much a real estate speculation game. And much of the value that happens after the asset is put in the ground ends up accruing to the people who happen to own the land around it. And so this this allows much of that um, or some of that value accretion to go back to, you know, the community, the public good. Um, You know, and one of the questions I also have, because you mentioned, Charlie, you mentioned GLX, and one of my um, skepticisms about using value capture there is that, and and I think, is it Chris Leinenberg? um, Yeah. Smart Growth for America. He, I was at his, um, uh, he spoke, uh, Representative Strauss invited him to the state house. He spoke about value capture. And he said, you can't go back to the well over and over and over again, because once the value is created, there's, there's no more value to take. Um, and one of the questions with, with the Greenlight Extension is that there's already been a lot of value created in speculating that it will come. 
And so developers have been going in there and buying up land and, and its um, values have already gone up for the past five years or so, if, if not further back. So I, I also wonder, well, how much value is obviously there's m- more value left, but we're sort of already beginning to dilute the effects. I think you're right. I, you want to get in as early as possible and you want to be planning how you're going to be implementing the value capture mechanism while you're planning the project. And we're coming in a little late on green line, but you know, hopefully there will be some opportunity there to, to, to take advantage. Within um, the uh, London transport uh, district, there's a 30% property tax surcharge that was imposed several years ago. And that has helped fuel an enormous growth in their system's reliability, uh, investing in the core system, you know, adding new lines, and providing much more capacity uh, than in the past. And it's you know, a great example of how that is used, but on a broad area, not you know, site-specific. Um, I don't think that that's politically feasible in Massachusetts yet, um, but to the extent that we start to compare how we finance transportation to other successful regions eventually will come around there. And our hope is that state leaders and legislators in the administration will understand what some of the options are to really move forward um, and perhaps copy best practices from other parts of the country and of the world. It's interesting that you mentioned that because I know in Boston there we're, we're considering now a 1% property tax surcharge that would go to, like, the I think CPA, parks and yeah. – Yes, the CPA, right. So which would be the conservation – Preservation. Community preservation. Community yeah. preservation, yeah. Um, so we'll see, how, we'll see how that goes. I know the 2% surcharge had been voted down, I think, six years ago. I think um, it was in 2001, actually. 2001, okay. come back yet, yeah. Um, okay, so there, there's several other um, items that are also at the State House now. I know uh, we spoke um, prior about the fair share amendment, um, and I, people have probably heard about that, but why don't we talk about that a little bit? The fair share amendment is proposed to be on the 2018 state ballot. And this would impose a 4% property, uh, sorry, income tax surcharge on incomes over a million dollars. So millionaires and above, I should say, people who earn a million dollars would see a 9% approximate tax on uh, just on that portion of income in excess of a million dollars. And it would be dedicated to education and transportation. And there's a strong economic case to be made for this because the Commonwealth really depends on mobility and knowledge. Those are really two key things where we need to keep investing. Um, so this is, now it needs to be passed by two successive sessions of the legislature meeting in constitutional convention where it needs to get at least 50 votes uh, out of 200 in 2010. 16, and then again in uh, 2017-18, and then it would be before the voters in 2018. So our coalition, Transportation for Massachusetts, is supporting this because we think that the hundreds of millions of dollars of new revenue needed is is really an important part of the solution. You know, we can talk about value capture or we can talk about regional ballot initiatives, but there are many communities where those are just not feasible, but they absolutely need transportation investment, and they certainly need uh, more funding for education. Uh, So we think that this is a really important option to have on the table. It may be the one that the voters approve uh, above the others, and, and we need to let that play out. If we didn't urgently need to restore our transportation network, 
um, and in order to be competitive with other regions, then we wouldn't be looking at all these different options. But the fair share amendment is a good um, a good thing to have in play because I think that we need that um, investment that it would provide. I think one of the reasons that the fair share amendment is um, is a good discussion to have in Massachusetts is because we have a relatively um, less progressive tax code at the state level than than some other places have. Uh, and what I what, what I mean by that is that no matter how high your income is, it you're not paying more than the five, let's say roughly five percent uh, tax. So, whereas the federal tax code, you you're, you have marginal increases in the percentage that you pay in your income tax as your income rises. We don't have that in Massachusetts. Um, so, you know, things like this are, are ways to to move towards that. Another way to do that is to provide um, deductions and credits um, at the lower end of the income spectrum, which makes the the, the total uh, income tax code uh, more uh, progressive. And that's um, what Governor Patrick tried to do unsuccessfully. Right. Um, w- would you talk about that for a second? And then you can lead into the transportation uh, tax uh, benefit that, that's uh, been proposed. Yeah, well, it feels like so long ago, but I guess it was like three years ago. Uh, the governor wanted to raise about $2 billion for transportation and education. And given the constraints on the Constitution, uh, he chose to raise uh, the personal exemption and simplify the tax code quite a bit while raising the income tax, which would have brought in about $2 billion. And that was uh, not met uh, with lots of uh, acceptance by the legislature. And and they ended up uh, raising money only for transportation, uh, but in a number of uh, various ways that uh, added up to about $500, $600 million a year. And some of those ways were repealed. The gas tax indexing was repealed uh, by approximately 53 to 47 percent in the 2014 election. And shortly after it was proposed, uh, the tech tax, uh, software tax, was strongly opposed by many business interests. And that was taken off the table just a couple of months after it was first signed into law. So my understanding is that the legislature, you know, I don't want to say earmarked, but but we had already decided where that money was going to go, that 500 to 600 million. And then we pulled back on the source for the funding. So are we now having unfunded mandates? Is that sort of where we're at right now? Uh, so s- the tech tax, that was going to the general fund. Um, but there was a commitment to spend additional money on transportation. So it actually, in that particular case, it came out of general fund revenue out of the rest of the budget for the gas tax and for the motor vehicle sales tax those are constitutionally protected transportation revenue. So it's a little bit of each. Okay. It's, it's worth pointing out that the gas tax is protected for all transportation. It's not enough for all transportation, but every penny that goes into the gas tax is spent on transit, roads, bridges, sidewalks, bikeways, and so forth. It's just we're going to see a capital plan come out you know, when people are listening to this uh, podcast, uh, after April 11th, there'll be a draft capital investment plan. And that will be very ambitious, how to spend $14 billion over the coming five or so years. Uh, but we'll see that it actually won't be enough for all the things that we need to do to thrive as a commonwealth, which is why we're talking about additional revenue. And I think uh, Josh wanted me to talk about the uh, transit benefit equity uh, piece so on the federal level, uh, there is a, um, a you know deduction for how much you spend on uh, on public transportation and parking, and for the last fifteen years, it's kind of uh, jumped back and forth 
as being the same amount. And then for a few years, the transit amount was lower so that it actually incentivized uh, driving to work over over taking public transportation. Thanks to the great work of Congressman McGovern and several of his colleagues, uh, it was permanently tied together. So uh, starting with the tax year of, of 2015, uh, it's $235, I believe. 250 for 250. 2015 and 255 starting in 2016. And keep going up. So uh, that was a huge win on the, on the federal level to, to tie those two benefits together. However, on the state level, uh, the state follows the federal government's lead on the parking benefit, but not on the transit benefit. So there's still inequity there. And uh, we've been working with Transit Matters and, and a few other organizations, including the TMAs and the Association for Commuter Transportation, to, to work on this issue in the legislature. And uh, Senator Keenan of Quincy has filed uh, legislation to uh, once and for all tie the state benefit to the federal benefit. Can I just take a moment? to give a shout out to our hosts at Transit Matters. I think that the work you folks do is really extraordinary. And, you know, the analysis and, and insight and the time you put into this um, is, uh, is is producing some great results. So I encourage your listeners to check out transitmatters.info. I was not paid to say that <laughs> yet. Or were you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not yet. Well, so this this tax uh, discussion has been fascinating. I'm sure all of our listeners will be riveted. Um <laughs> But that being said, why don't we get into some really dicey conversation about tolling? Mm -hmm. Because this is the kind of thing that gets people in Massachusetts up in arms. And uh, even in our own uh, internal interwebs that we have for Transit Matters, we were having a discussion today about why uh, 90 has tolls and 93 doesn't. Um, And and I know I worked briefly uh, in Senator Spoka's office, and that was year after year after year a hot topic for Metro West region. Um, So... I know that there has been some discussion of VMT, and there has vehicle miles traveled as, as another way of doing um, um, transportation funding through, through taxing vehicle miles traveled instead of uh, gallons of gas purchased, things like that. Um, open road tolling and, um, and the discussion about um, tolling equity. So um, whichever one of you wants to begin with this fraught topic. Uh, I'll start, and then I'll hand it over to my friend from Metro West. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's a it's definitely a politically wrought issue, and then there's the issue of the federal government having uh, restrictions on on what we can toll. Um, you know, tolling is is efficient. It's a user fee. There's a lot of a lot of things going for it. However, we do have this uh, inequity where only certain roads and, and and tunnels in the state and, and one bridge are, are told. There's people who are told c- coming and going on their commute every single day. There's people who drive the same exact distance and, and don't pay a toll. Uh, so it's, it's definitely an issue. I think with the advent of open road tolling and I think the, the tolling gantries are going up as we speak and it's supposed to be rolled Can out. Can you explain what open road tolling is? Sure. So we're getting rid of all the toll collectors. Um, so starting, we're just getting rid of their jobs. <laughs> the booths. We're getting rid of the booths. <laughs> getting rid of the booths. Yeah, and we're installing you will, gantries. You will not have to slow down. So it's like no the, persons will be nope. hurt in this experiment. That's right. The Boston Herald's going to have to find new things to write about. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so we're we're going to be able to drive sixty five through the uh, through the tolls. 
or higher, uh, depending on your preference. <laughs> uh, so it'll be like the Hampton Tolls in uh, in New Hampshire, and this technology, you know, it's here and if on the Tobin Bridge. It's yeah. already here on the Tobin Bridge. Yep, um, and the uh, it'll be on the the Pike in October. So the technology is there. Uh, you know, we have the ability to to put up gantries uh, all over the place, and you get you get um, charged, and you don't have to stop. You don't have to slow down. Uh, the issue is that still uh, it is under the restrictions of the federal government, and if it's an interstate, there is not currently an opening to uh to toll new roads in in the state there is a a small uh chance that we will gain some sort of ability to to toll additional interstates and that's through the recent federal legislation there are three states and i'm sorry i can't name them right now i think one of them's north carolina missouri missouri and another one and uh if they it's kind of a user lose it if they don't start taking advantage of this provision in like a year there's three new states that can come in uh but that you know that would take a kind of larger political discussion to to come in there so even though i-90 most people would think of as an interstate are we saying that i-90 was or mass pike slash i-90 was that was that funded yeah it's new interstate it's okay. uh, yeah so that that was grandfathered in it was grandfathered in before the federal government made it illegal to to toll the interstate. Is that correct? Not exactly. It was paid for with bonds backed by toll revenue ah, okay, in the gotcha. you know, 1950s and 60s. So that was how it was built. And many other toll roads uh, the same way. It's just we so, haven't so gotten rid that, of our tolls. So you know, the state wanted the road and there was a decision, do, do we take or can we get federal funding for this versus we're going to bond off of tolls? Is that sort of the way that, that it was one or the other? Yes. I was only in elementary school in the 50s, so I don't know. <laughs> I, sorry uh, that I'm grilling you guys about it. No, no, that, that, that's essentially correct. Uh, like many roads that were built, you know, there was limited – I mean, even though the federal interstate program was very ambitious and this road did get a, you know interstate designation, it was built more quickly um, you know, through this you know, process. I mean, the story of how the Mass Pike was built is an interesting story of you know, Massachusetts government and the exercise of political power. And I recommend reading for anyone that wants to go back to see how those decisions were made. <laughs> but, 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 but Charlie is on, on point saying that we first, if we want to have the revenue needed to maintain all of our roads, and you can tell that the Mass Pike is generally in better shape than most other limited access highways because it has that dedicated source of revenue compared to you know, many other roads. So if we want to actually find revenue to help you know, meet the cost of maintenance – then this federal waiver is worth exploring. And I hope MassDOT does take that step, even though it is politically popular, uh, sorry, unpopular to talk about tolling because we have a perception that somehow something is free just because we're not paying for it out of pocket at the time we use it. But the larger point is that really there's no mode of transportation that's fully supported by user fees. Gas taxes do not pay the cost of building and maintaining roads. You know, um, in a minute, we should talk about a whole other way of looking at how people might pay for roads in the future. Uh, you know, Oregon's doing a similar experiment to that. But let's – with that teaser, we can get to that in a minute. Yeah, so I, I do want to ask more because I, th- I think you're getting to VMT, uh, that discussion that Oregon has been um, experimenting with. But w- when we're talking about the electronic open-world tolling um, and getting to that point where we have those capabilities and people are accepting of them and people are used to um, – 
paying these paying these fees, we begin to have the ability with the electronic open road tolling to have these to be dynamic. Um, I know uh, I was recently in Houston and they had HOT lanes, um, mm-hmm. which were the the high occupancy vehicle. Or if you didn't have more than one person in the vehicle, you could pay a toll and you could drive in that lane also. Um, of course, they have you know twenty five lanes, so that's easier to do. <laughs> but um, one of the questions that even came was was within our group today was okay, well if we can't put tolls on I ninety three, can we put toll gantries? At the off ramp, when people come into the financial district, you know, when they're getting off at Purchase Street or something like that, or uh, you know, that even gets more into congestion pricing, like they have in London or Paris, where it's sort of like if you're entering this congested part of the city in your personal vehicle, then you pay a bit of you know a toll, uh, for back of, lack of a better phrase. But where are we on those things? Are those things allowed? Is that something that we envision in the future? I think so. Yeah, I think I. <laughs> Uh, because I, I know the the hot lanes you're talking about are on um, federal interstate highways, so that that's been a wiggle room that they that I know Virginia has taken advantage of, Texas, and a couple of other states. So you are as long as there's free, as long as there's free lanes, you can toll certain mm-hmm. lanes on an interstate highway. So I know that's that's something that is is probably they can look at it. And I think when you go with the open open road uh, tolling and with the gantries, it's a lot easier to kind of move and, and remove these things. I think I saw that they're adding a new toll gantry to the exit in Newtonville where there hadn't been one uh, in the past. And so... Oh, so feasibly, you could even have um, have that happening uh, morning rush, evening rush. You could apply it only to the people going in that direction during yeah. the peak time, even. Yeah, yeah I think I, I was in Maryland recently, and they are, they're constantly updating the toll. There's like two... I'm going to screw this up. There's two roads. I think it's the Beltway, and then there's an expressway. And you can choose which one to take, and you'll see what the live toll figure is. At one's free, and one might be, you know, dollar ten one day, and you're like, sh- you know, sure, I'll do it. One day it might be like two eighty five, and you say, oh, that's a little too much. I'll stay on the free one. So there, are all sorts of options. Well, like so that. W- even with environmental during during like hot days in the summer when we have the pollution levels are higher, then we could raise the toll a little bit more, and people might choose transit instead <laughs> yeah I, I mean, surge pricing right yeah. exactly well i mean I, and i think in um in virginia and i don't know exactly how they're how they're doing this but they they say supposedly they've got an algorithm to try and 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 raise the toll so that the the um the speed in the hot lanes is 60 miles an hour the whole time so you know there's that, all kinds i think of possibilities. that might be what i was trying to say so that, <laughs> um and i th- but i think you know we should raise the equity issue you know especially if you're talking about like the hot lanes which People call them Mercedes lanes, right? Lexus lanes. Lexus lanes. That's right. Mercedes. Uh, so just to you know, raise that. You know, that's definitely um, definitely something to think about if we're considering that. Well, I think we also should just talk about some of the climate reasons why you really want to discourage single uh, occupancy vehicle use, and why for some of these things there could be an incentive for electric vehicles because you know we do need to arrest uh, the you know increase of. Um, Greenhouse gases, right, and and cars are, are a major contributor towards that. And and the other the other component of just simply tolling, because then people are like, well, if you're going to toll me, I, I need to have a better option. And so that better option can and should be uh, the in, the capital investment and modernization of our commuter rail system along these uh, these these highways that we're going to start tolling, that we'd like to start tolling, uh, and giving giving people an actual option. Because I, I, I work down in, uh, my day job is, is right next to the aquarium, which is right in the heart of Boston. But the company moved from Andover to downtown Boston, and a lot of people's 
haven't moved from their suburban homes that were close to Andover. So a lot of people actually do drive to work to the office downtown, even though there's commuter rail lines that they could otherwise ride. But the times that they need to get there and the, the parking lot, I mean, you, you know, you, if you want to look at the, the, the issue of commuting and trying to do that, the whole mode shift and, uh, and discouraging people from driving, you know, the answer might be, okay, well, these people, we need to expand the park, the commuter rail parking lots. And, you know, maybe that's one of the answers, but, um, the the other side of the equation is yeah okay if we expand the parking lots and we have more people or we have more people living near um, far flung uh, commuter rail stops well how are they going to get to downtown or how are they how are they how are we going to build a transit network that uh, is convenient for them to actually use as opposed to say driving and saying oh I have no other choice but to drive because I can't get to work at you know the time that my boss needs me there. Um, I mean, I think that's kind of what we're dancing around. The well, currently, topic here. you know, currently the mechanism, the yeah. market mechanism that we've had to urge many people to choose transit over right. driving has been the price of parking downtown, which you know, uh, Josh, you brought up uh, environmental issues, which I think it was a, really a great blessing. Yeah. You know, the Commonwealth that um, the EPA put a restriction on the number of parking spots that we could have you know, in, in the financial district. And of course, now we're seeing parking spots evaporating in the seaport as buildings are going up. So, And then just being buried downtown, but, buried but, underneath right, the buildings. But, but the right. issue with that restricted supply of parking and the, yeah. the price goes up and people say, okay, you know, maybe it makes more sense for me to take the commuter rail or transit or whatever it is. The The issue with that is that 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 profit is being absorbed by the developers and the, the, mm-hmm. own, the owners of the building, kind of like the value capture discussion we had. And there's no way to capture that and invest it back into transit unless we were going to charge a parking surcharge or something like that. Because the other market mechanism of, of it's not, not a dollar sign price, but it's a time price that people pay in congestion. And they say, well, I'd rather be reading the paper, you know, in, on the train than sitting in traffic, you know. So, but, but that's another thing where there's no money being generated that can be spent on transportation improvements. That's just a price of time. Right. You know, I think that people listening to this podcast have heard us talk about like 10 different ways to you know, grab, uh, open, <laughs> open up their wallets and extract yep. money. And I think that it's helpful to, to frame this as what do we really want? And I think everyone, uh, you know, participating in this conversation, I hope people listening, mm-hmm. understand that what we really need in this state is a vision for a safe, affordable, clean, reliable transportation network that will get people where they want to go times of day and night they need to get there without it being a total pain in the neck. And right now, getting from place to place in Massachusetts is so difficult that we are at risk of losing a lot of the companies and workforce that are going to really help build our future economy. And we've got to be really serious about that. So when we talk about regional ballot initiatives and value capture and congestion pricing and gas taxes and tolls and everything else – it's all because we are really starved for the revenue to realize this vision, mm-hmm. and there is a timidity of, of failure of leadership of people really willing to actually develop that vision and make it a reality. Right. You know, and I think that's one of the things that we need to do. We're not just going to manage around the edges of this uh, crisis that we're facing um, that's really at the risk of you know, the best employees saying, you know what, I'd actually rather live in Maryland or Colorado or California or Seattle uh, we really need to be developing that vision, figuring out how to pay for it, and then getting it done. And that we can't really wait very long for that. These are just tools. As you said before, these are just 
uh, revenue tools that we need to add to the toolbox because yep. right now our, our toolbox has been very constrained and we have uh, very few tools, very blunt tools, but very few tools in the toolbox. Um, so I guess uh, I'm going to lead this into the other uh, into into that that idea of the vision. Who who can drive that vision? Uh, and then and then I guess the next the, I guess the corollary to that is is what um, what role do the MPOs have? What what role can the MPOs play? Because I mean, um, we've talked about how uh, yeah, some of these some of these, um, for example, the value capture uh, can allow different towns coordinate with each other. But what 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 is it to say? Uh, can the MPOs drive that vision about what those different projects are up amongst different communities? Well, I think MPOs really just spend the money that's available to them. Yeah. I mean, you know, they they have so much money, you know, currently 80% federal, 20% state match and, you know, and a list of projects that's three times as long as anything they can mm-hmm. possibly fund in, in a given year. I mean, I think the real answer is going to come from leadership from city halls, town halls, chambers of commerce, um, you know, the, the boards of major museums, um, ownership of, you know, professional sports teams. People who depend on mobility to thrive are going to need to step up to the plate. And that's one of the things that we're working on to try to make sure that we do have a strong coalition of partners and members all across the state who are advocating for this common purpose of a modern transportation network. So not to say MPOs aren't important, but they can only spend the money that they've got. And I mean, one of the challenges that we've always had is we have all these different people advocating for all these different things, and, and there hasn't been that that vision. Um and so, you know, I'm curious, obviously, you know, I have my own ideas about, you know, what the vision might be, but you know, I'm wondering, how do we, how do we, um, how do we put together that vision? What, what might that vision be? And, and also can, can the T be part of this? Because, um, you know, I'm always, I'm always saying, you know, we're often saying that the T is their own worst enemy in some ways, because they, they will not stand up and advocate for themselves and to say, you know, this is what we need. This is what a good, a good setup for the future is. And cause they're, you know, politically constrained yep. and all that. And I'm wondering if that's a piece of that. Because they see themselves as, well, we just run the transit system. You you just give us the tool. We're only here. We just just run the system. That's all we're here for. Well, I think, you know, it's a larger question with a larger answer. But just on the T, I think there is some reason to be – Encouraged that the for the first time ever the um, the capital plan is a combined MBTA and MassDOT plan and in the past those have been separated and you know with uh, overlap on the uh, FMCB and the MassDOT board there's some cohesion there I don't think it, you know that that's not solving everything right there but I think it's that's something to be encouraged about and the MBTA has uh, always produced something that's, call it a fiscally unconstrained, although now it's partially constrained, planning process. It's called Focus 40. What do we want the MBTA to look like in uh, 20-something years? Um, So that's being developed as well. And and I think they really are thinking long-term, but the MBTA really are, they are fundamentally charged with, you know, administering and not necessarily being the leader. So that's really what we look for, I think, the governor and legislative leaders and you know, our titans of industry and culture uh, to come together around, around that vision. Um, so I think that we've got, over the next year or two, particularly when we see this capital plan being released, which has, I should mention, a whole new way of looking at the investments we make. 
I should just pause for a second and say that one of the great things that happened in 2013 when we created new revenue for transportation for the first time in decades was a uh, slightly arcane concept called project selection criteria. And what that meant is that how we spend transportation money in the future is going to look at health and equity and climate social factors to make sure that we're really serving people and their needs and not just how do you move the most cars through an intersection the quickest uh, because that has nothing that doesn't necessarily bear in relation you know you could do that build a bigger intersection or a bigger highway and then the concept of induced demand means it'll just be fully congested in a few years so we change the criteria by which we judge the projects that are being prioritized it created criteria to affect Oh, to, to take into uh, account some of these externalities. The the past process was entirely political, and it was just the staff of of Mastod and, and the, who could the shout s- loudest about a project. Yeah, yeah, and how long a project had been around was was kind of one of the biggest factors. But this set up a more uh, fact based and, and sober decision making process. Now the uh, you know what Josh said is entirely true, and it's a you know it's a great step. We're we're still kind of eager to see the details of how that process played into the five-year plan because it's not like a binding thing. There's still a lot of room for massaging the plan uh, based on, uh, you know, other, other factors, but but we're very encouraged that, um, that these projects are being weighed, you know, against each other with these uh, objective criteria that, that Josh talked about. And on the topic of leadership, um, I, in my brief stint in the state house, I felt like there was there was I don't want to you know point out any particular legislative leaders or anything like that, but there, there seemed to be an issue where people um, you know constituents were more willing to embrace uh, additional f- revenue for transportation than the legislators may- maybe were. Of course, a lot of that gets bottled up into the leaders uh, of the legislature of, of the legislature. Um, legislature. Um, but what are you seeing? And without, you know, you don't want to jeopardize any relationships, but, but do you feel like there's more leadership um, or leadership is more willing to, to fund transportation than they have in the past? Well, let's go back to last uh, winter, the winter of 2015, when the Can MET broke down. <laughs> no, go ahead. Let's, let, well, we need to remember sorry. it as long as we, we need can. to remember it. I don't want no, to go back. No, <laughs> what, what, what I think that did is that it, uh, and that put yeah. such a focus on the issue of maintenance. Yeah that now people are really focused on just fixing what we have. Mm-hmm. But we can't let go of building what we need. Transportation projects take you know, decades to come to fruition. Yeah. So we have to be planning now for the, what we want in the years to come. So we cannot simply take an approach, as tempting as it is for the governor and legislative leaders, let's just have the MBTA get its, you know, you know build what they've got. They're going to need to be investing in the signals and stations and switches yeah. and track and cars you know, the fleet and maintenance facilities expanded in order to provide, you know, tomorrow's transportation network. So so we are having that conversation, and the capital plan is going to really have a focus on maintenance over expansion, but we really need to do both. And so I think that's, you know, you've touched on it, that, you know, the issue of, of what we talk about can't just be the, you know, critical failures of the, you know, the systems that we've got. And your winter resiliency is great, but we need a robust system right. for every season. Yeah, there's two false choices. One is uh, reform versus revenue. Right. We clearly need both. And the other is maintenance versus expansion. We clearly need both. And I don't think I'd you know jeopardize any relationships up there by you know 
to answer your question, uh, you know, I think the, the governor is very hesitant to do any tax increases. Uh, the House has some openness, but generally not very favorable to it. And the Senate uh, is very open to that conversation. Right well, so now. where does modernization fit into that puzzle? Because, yeah, it, it does seem like a dichotomy of, okay, well, we can either bring everything back up to just normal standards or then we can expand it but what about what about modernization you're thinking like electrification i don't know maybe i am thinking about electrification (laughs) they're calling it priority two priority two uh in the capital plan at least that um that you know priority one is like literally state of good repair you know something is Mm -hmm. falling apart we need to replace it priority two is modernization or capacity Mm -hmm. enhancements and uh priority three is expansion so there's nuance (laughs) <laughs> Just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right right but 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 there are certain things with um you know maintenance issues that will actually improve capacity mm-hmm. yeah so, so it's, not it's, sure. it's hard to really right, uh, right. You know, upgrading the signals on the red line will both you know make it more reliable but also allow you to have shorter headways to right. move more people yeah, and making stations more accessible is not a state of good repair issue but it'd be hard to argue that that's not incredibly important. It is. I mean, when you have a high-platform commuter rail station, you're reducing the dwell time substantially. People can get on and off the trains quickly with motorized doors rather than queuing up you know, to go down the stairs, and it's safer uh, as well. And it's also that's an important justice issue to make sure that yeah. our system serves everybody uh, fairly. I uh, Again, this is my New Yorker bias here. I grew up with the Long Island Railroad in my backyard, uh, for the first seven years of my life, and it just when I moved to Boston, it just seemed like like I was stepping like I was exp- like the the at the front of the train was a steam locomotive, and I was about to step on onto the train up into the train and then and you know it was going to be a Pullman car and like it, that's that's how it felt the first time I rode commuter rail to to norwood and it it's uh yeah i mean it's a huge aside from being you know, um, <laughs> something that I feel like is kind of a given uh, high-level platforms, but uh, a huge accessibility issue for uh, for a lot of the stations out there. I mean, we have these mini high platforms, but uh, and and in many at many stations they they force you or not I'm not going to say force, but they 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 politely encourage you to go board at the uh, high-level platform, otherwise you don't get on the train in some in some instances, but. Um, uh, but otherwise, uh, like I, I don't know. Especially at Back Bay uh, on the on the Worcester line, um, I've missed. I, I actually missed the train. Uh, was it a year ago or two years ago at the to the uh, T for Mass uh, transportation summit in Worcester? I missed the train because I had because I couldn't get to the end of the platform soon enough because um, I needed to get to the high level platform, uh, and so I ended up taking a zip car. Uh, <laughs> have we mentioned that we need a commuter rail transformation? Because I, I yeah. think that was uh, something that we've, uh, we've mentioned before. So. Modernization. Um, and what you know, one of those yeah. things when we talk about uh, when we talk about the, the system's needs and this you know maintenance, maintenance of the system, it's um, it, it's not just you know trying to get it to run reliably as it's scheduled right now, but but to consider those those the service deficiencies. As you know, things like you know we don't have enough service, doesn't go to the right places, things like that. Uh, in addition to just you know getting getting a thing so we don't have disabled trains, right? And maybe more nuance in even the service itself. Like maybe we don't need you know full twenty four hour service to uh, I don't know. Um, I, I'm trying Norwood. to think of 
no <laughs> uh but i mean you know maybe maybe we don't necessarily need transit level service every single hour of the day to all of uh to on every single branch line um you know there are there are different levels of service that we can provide and that um I don't know, I feel like go hand-in-hand hand with um, with modernization of commuter rail. Well, you know, technology has really enabled a lot of changes in how we think of transportation. And, and you know, we if if we were having this uh, broadcast, a podcast uh, a few years ago, we wouldn't necessarily have thought of how the smartphone is changing mm-hmm. transportation. But with services like, you know, Zipcar and Uber and Lyft and Bridge and Hubway and, you know, uh, parking spot <laughs> sharing apps and and many more um we actually can explore ways to get people to their destination uh without necessarily full you know motorized you know vehicles on steel rails so there are ways to get there but we need to make sure that that's providing service to everybody not just you know an investment banker out for you know at 2 a.m right but someone who actually has to be at work at 5 a.m to you know work uh, as you know uh on a uh in a restaurant. Well, and, and to piggyback on that point, I, I do hope that that um, to plug the the, fo- the uh, Focus Forty uh, thing, and I, and I really hope that lots of people are getting engaged in this, and lots of different types of people, um, you know, including you know minorities, because I really want to make sure that you know as we're as we're talking about what are the priorities, I want to make sure that you know while it is important that we increase you know mobility in the seaport, we also want to make sure that that. Um, that the investments we're trying to make are are going to be targeting all communities and especially targeting communities where people, you know, really don't have any other access uh, to mobility other than public transit. And so I think what you said is really important that, that this should be a capital investment plan for all. Well, Jared, that's right. I'm really glad you mentioned that. And let's think of uh, Springfield, for example, where there are many uh, communities where people need to get to a, uh, you know, a, a third shift outside of the city and the Pioneer Valley Transit Authority does not have service at that time of day. So we need to be thinking statewide of how we're going to, you know, get people to work, uh, particularly as transportation is just critical to people's individual economic success. And, you know, we, uh, many of our members are community-based organizations that care about this deeply. I should just mention some of the other stuff we do, because I know we're probably getting near the end. Our social justice policy coordinator, Hakeem Cunningham, is working with community-based organizations all around the state to make sure that transportation justice is front and center and that, you know, equity is something that's part of the conversation. And our, uh, you know, we have our director, Christina Egan, who's worked on statewide issues for transportation. She understands that part of our mission is to make sure that transportation has to serve everybody. So these are really important to our coalition. And when we think of the issues in transportation, it's, it is to serve everyone. Uh, we need the, everyone in the workforce to be able to get to work. With that said, I think that's a perfect place to leave it. Um, thank you guys so much for coming in. Uh, this has been really informative, and um, you know I've worked with you guys uh, for you know for a while now, and um, I think we we uh, complement each other very well. And um, it's been a very informative discussion. Um, you can uh, find out more about. Uh, why don't you guys tell uh, tell us where we c- everybody can find out more about you guys? Sure, t the number four ma dot org. 
Excellent. And you're uh, also on Twitter at... Tw- yep, at uh, T4Mass on Twitter and Facebook.com slash T4Mass. And you can also call us at 413-367-T4MA if you want to use that telephone thing that nice. you have in Springfield your pocket. Springfield number. Excellent. Would you guys like to share your individual Twitter handles? <laughs> <or>? <laughs> uh, I'm at, at Charlie Tykotsky. At Josh Ostroff. Cool. Excellent. And uh, we uh, are Transit Matters, and we are at transitmatters.info. Um, go there, find out more about us, and um, go and support us, and t- as well as T4Mass. Uh, we don't have to fight each other over uh, little dollars. Um, we um, So, yeah, go find us on uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, and sometimes Periscope. Um, and we want to give I want to give a sh- uh, shout out to uh, WMBR for hosting us uh, and for Mully for engineering. Um, and uh, I am Jeremy Mendelson, and I'm at Critical Transit Online on the interwebs. You can follow me, Mark Ibunia, at Digital Sci Guy. I'm Josh. I tweet at Hatchback31. And this is Jared. I'm at J A R J O H. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and uh, have a great night. <laughs>